This Cap Times podcast is brought to you by Exact Sciences Corporation, the makers of Colaguard. Learn more at exactsciences.com. Sarah Kenzior doesn't hold back in her assessment of the Trump administration. We do not have a government. We have a transnational crime syndicate masquerading as a government. In her new book, Hiding in Plain Sight, The Invention of Donald Trump and the Erosion of America, she details Trump's rise to power dating back to the 1980s. Sarah was supposed to come to Madison to promote her book this month, but obviously no one's doing much traveling these days. So instead, we chatted about her new book with each other from our own homes. So you, obviously, we would have been talking um, because you were about to go on a book tour, and now that's not really happening, um, but you do have a book coming out. Um, what is uh, book promotion and, and media outreach like uh, when you're not able to actually go on the road? Oh, I mean, it's it's rough. Uh, you know, on one hand, there's obviously plenty of time for people to be uh, reading during quarantine. And my book, Hiding in Plain Sight, directly addresses a lot of the issues that are happening now, which is basically being ruled by a government uh, acting as an apocalyptic death cult. And then the decades that led up to that. But on an individual level, you know, I'm in the, the same boat as everyone else. Um, it's a public health crisis. It's a national tragedy. I've got two kids. I'm supposed to be homeschooling uh, at the moment. And, you know, <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting time. Um, yeah, an interesting time to be alive, uh, briefly. So, yeah, <laughs> definitely. Um, yeah, I, I can't help but think, I mean, the, the timing on your book, it, it just, it couldn't be better uh, with everything that's going on and, and everything that you've studied. And you, you kind of write about, like, you've, you've kind of lived through uh, a lot of major upheavals in the country and been in the epicenter of those things. You were, you know, in New York for 9-11, you were in St. Louis uh, for the Ferguson uprising. Um, do, do you just end up in the, in the wrong place at the wrong time or, or the right place at the right time? Uh, is, that, is that just kind of how your life has been ending up? Uh, apparently so, you know, <laughs> and I, when I signed the contract for this book, um, you know, I was saying, and I, I wasn't really kidding. I think my agent, and my publisher thought I was like, there's no way there's going to be a free, you know, freedom of speech and bookstores and mobility and by 2020, like we're on the road to autocracy. We're probably going to be there by then, but you know, you got to make a living. So I agreed to do it. I also felt uh, an urgency to document what was happening. And I saw a lot of this story was not being told by the mainstream media. And and I did, you know, sincerely want to take that opportunity to record it while I could. Um, I did not necessarily envision publishing my book in the midst of a plague, but it is kind of in keeping uh, with the uh, direction of my career. And unfortunately, in keeping with a lot of the, the tragedies that I documented, 
in this book. I feel like we're at a culmination point. And, um, you know, honestly, like I am very sad that my, my tour was canceled and so on and so forth, but we have much bigger worries. You know, it's, it's a heartbreaking thing, um, to watch in terms of the casualties, uh, and in terms of the threats to, to our freedom and, and to our future. So for people who are listening to this who maybe haven't read the, the write-ups on your book yet, what's the, what's the elevator pitch? What should people know about it and, and why should they pick it up? Basically, Hiding in Plain Sight tells the story of the last 40 years of elite criminal impunity. Uh, we do not have a government. We have a transnational crime syndicate masquerading as a government. And I discuss the various forces uh, that backed up Donald Trump throughout his 40-year rise, specifically the Russian mafia. But I also talk about the erosion of America and the weakening of our institutions over those 40 years that made this possible um, economically, socially, uh, you know, the wars that we've had after 9-11, the 2008 uh, economic collapse, which of course is going to pale uh, in the face of the Great Depression that's forthcoming. Um, and there's somewhat of an autobiographical component to this as well, because, you know, as you mentioned, I have been in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, and so what I tried to do is kind of tie together what a lot of people thought was an abstract phenomenon, which is Trump's relationship with Russia, his relationship with organized crime, uh, what the GOP has been up to, and link it directly to our effect, um, you know, to the effect it has on ordinary American citizens just trying to live their lives, you know, trying to fulfill their own dreams and ambitions to keep their families afloat. Uh, you can't separate these things. And I think, unfortunately, coronavirus has really brought this home, you know, that this isn't uh, a matter of impersonal or abstract policy. These people make life and death decisions on our behalf, uh, and they're choosing, they're choosing at this moment death. Um, and I'm sorry to state that so bluntly, but that really is what I feel they've been doing in terms of allowing this virus to spread, refusing to uh, give hospitals and medical workers and service workers the supplies that they need. We're seeing the result of that. We're seeing the result of what happens when criminals go unpunished for decades and insert themselves into positions of political power and then wield that power over a citizen um, that's lost its leverage over time. So you, you mentioned, um, you know, the, the Russian elements of Trump's rise to power and, and you studied that again, you're, you're life aligning you with the, the things that, that end up coming into the public sphere, but you, you studied post-Soviet dictatorships. What parallels do you see? What, what kind of, I guess, having that expertise, um, what, are, what do you see in the administration in Trump's rise that maybe average people are, are missing? Well, when Trump first ran, um, I wrote an article way back in, I think it was February 2016, called Trumpman Bashi, which was a play on Turkmen Bashi, the dictator of Turkmenistan, because you reminded me so much of, of that dictator, you know, who's a kleptocrat and somebody who steals the state's resources to enha enhance their personal wealth, a narcissist, a megalomaniac, uh, someone who has obviously no intention of serving for the public good. Then, as time went on, I realized that Trump's connection to these post-Soviet kleptocracies wasn't metaphorical, it was literal. When he hired Paul Manafort, you know, who I knew of well as somebody deeply tied to the Kremlin, tied especially to uh, Russian oligarchs and to the Russian mafia, I thought that was very alarming, and I couldn't believe people were treating this like a normal campaign hire. And so I started looking into Trump's own history and seeing how deeply entrenched he is with 
Russian mafia and mafia affiliates. I mean, it's not just Russia. It's not like they're just, you know, they're directly taking orders from the Kremlin, although the Kremlin plays a big role. It really is transnational organized crime, where you're finding a lot of corrupt actors from a number of countries around the world, um, you know, excessively from the former Soviet Union, but not exclusively from there, working to hijack governments. You're seeing it in Hungary, in the UK. Uh, you saw attempts on it in, in France and Germany. They're often, uh, you know, white supremacists or other extremists in terms of their ideology, although there are quite a few people involved like Trump who are just really there for the money, for the power um, to be immune from prosecution. They don't necessarily have like a grand sweeping geopolitical plan. Um, and so, yeah, all of that has been deeply alarming. It's also something our intelligence agencies should have picked up on long ago. Um, and that sent me down another search, which is documented in the book, where I discovered that um, you know two of the former heads of the FBI in recent years, William Sessions and Louis Free, went on to work for the Russian mafia after declaring the Russian mafia the greatest threat we faced uh, in the you know the late twentieth, early twenty first century. Mueller had made a speech. Um, about transnational organized crime, describing exactly the kind of people that surround Trump, people like Paul Manafort, people like Roger Stone, and the Russian mafia itself. So he should have been prepared to combat them. Uh, he didn't. He folded. We've seen excessive preemptive surrender to what is an existential threat. Um, and there were many chances to hold this off and to expose it to the public. But those who attempted to do so were silenced, sometimes, you know, permanently. There have been journalists killed over this. Um, or they were simply, you know, dismissed as conspiracy theorists or, you know, I don't know. People really don't want to believe that this has happened. And I personally would love if this all weren't true. I'd love if I were wrong about this and if we lived in some sort of stable, transparent democracy. But as we see, you know, the situation has gotten progressively worse and worse. And now I think we're just at the absolute culmination with, with coronavirus, where they have us, you know, trapped in our homes uh, for a legitimate reason, because there is a public health threat. But that's going to be exploited for uh, all sorts of, uh, you know, malevolent, uh, malevolent ends. And, you know, that's a frightening prospect. Yeah, I mean, so you, you mentioned, you know, the this people people don't want this to be true you know people are likely to hear you know when you hear phrases like transnational crime syndicate your your first reaction is like there's no way you know it, it can't be that bad that kind of stuff is just the stuff you see on on tv like the world isn't scandal uh but for people who are not inclined to want to believe this i mean what what would you say to turn them on to this thing that none of us really want to be true yeah, I mean, one thing to do is just to look at Trump's own statements uh, and his own records and his own public interaction, because he routinely confesses to his crimes. You know, even during the election, he was openly asking Russia to get Hillary Clinton's emails. And he, you know, had meetings with Putin at the G20. And he is in bed with the Russian mafia. And this is documented through a long series of lawsuits. Um, the same things are true about Roger Stone and the kind of criminal activity he was involved in with people like Bill Barr, uh, who served as the Iran-Contra cleanup guy um, back in the early 90s and has reemerged to serve as Trump's cleanup guy. You know, you're seeing the same people over and over. And I think that, you know, some of the problem is the view of 
organized crime where people either think of it as like the Sopranos as some sort of, you know, low key, uh, primarily Italian operation. They don't realize that organized crime has blended with white collar crime. And so if you're talking about Trump being uh, in hock or being loyal to Russian oligarchs, it's not that different. And in fact, it's intimately connected with American plutocrats, with things like dark money in the American political system, with hyper capitalism, like the, you know, the border between criminality um, and, you know, capitalism gone awry, as they'll euphemistically phrase it, is very thin. You know, this is all one kind of entity. It's hurting people in other countries, ordinary people, just as much um, as ours. And so I think there's a tendency to sort of see this in like a Tom Clancy nation state battle, or it's less dramatic in that way. It's often shocking because of the tactics that they'll use and because of what it says about our institutions, which is not just that our institutions are weak, but that they've been infiltrated, you know, and there's been things that shocked me, like when I found out that in 2015, uh, the US Treasury was infiltrated by Russia and that this wasn't revealed to the public until 2018, like I-, I was shocked by that. I was like, well, what was the Obama administration doing? What were our intelligence agencies doing? Like, why am I someone who's investigating this? Why are journalists at BuzzFeed investigating this? Like, where is everyone? That's still a question that remains unanswered. But I would definitely encourage folks to look at primary sources. And another thing that's advantageous is to read the old media about Trump, like starting from the 1980s up until about 2015 when people started biting their tongues. Because there was a time where all of this was very well documented. There have been other books by other writers, um, Wayne Barrett, you know, the late Wayne Barrett, of The Village Voice in particular, that documented all of Trump's crimes. And so people sometimes were like, well, how do you know this stuff? Or why do you think this is true? I'm like, this is in the public domain. Like, you can just get like a library card and find out these things. (laughs) They're not secrets. And I'm like, maybe somebody should get Bob Mueller a library card because he clearly needs one. Like, (laughs) I just couldn't believe the incompetence. Or things like, you know, Donald Trump Jr. He tweets out the Trump Tower plot. He tweets out the emails. And (laughs) The reason they do this, though, I think is because they were very, very confident that they would face no consequences for their behavior. Like, even if they confess to their crimes, nobody's going to have the balls to actually do anything about it. And that turned out to be completely true. And that is a source of enormous frustration for me. Like, what they've done is basically rewrite the law so that they're no longer breaking it. Gut agencies, pack courts, uh, command executive power and abuse it. That's a great way to start up a mafia state. And that's what they've turned the United States into. I I love the way you described it as a celebrity apprentice of federal felons and disgraced operatives. It's true. Like it's it's a cast of characters that have made their way through history and and shown up for, you know, decade over decade and got brought back out of the shadows. Um, you, You mentioned Paul Manafort. What are the other sort of like major names that people should know, um, you know, that, that I guess are, are central to what's going on here. Um, well, Manafort's partner, Roger Stone, um, and their relationship to Trump is worth examining. That goes all the way back to the early 80s, um, contra to what some newspapers tried to make you believe. That's well documented. They were all tutored by Roy Cohn. Uh, Roy Cohn was a mafia lawyer who also was Joe McCarthy's lawyer during those hearings. He then went on to work for Nixon. A lot of these guys kind of started out in the Nixon era. And there's an element to this that's just GOP politics. It's the Republican Party wanting to create a one-party state, wanting to make sure that something like 
Watergate could never happen again. And part of the way they did that was through creating their own media, was through things like Fox News and their own propaganda apparatus. Um, You also see war criminals coming back, people like John Bolton, uh, as well as the various, uh, you know, Republican war criminals who Trump has pardoned. You saw the return of Jeff Sessions uh, from Ku Klux Klan land. Um, Rudy Giuliani is a name that emerged. And, you know, if I had had uh, more time, I I would have put in more about him because he's really central. Like Giuliani in the 1980s uh, was heralded for having basically cleaned up New York City and taking on the Italian mafia. But in doing that, and it does seem to be intentionally so, uh, he made way for the, quote, Russian mafia, you know, some of whom are not ethnically Russian, they're just from the former Soviet Union, who came in, uh, infiltrated Wall Street, infiltrated real estate, and basically uh, created a, a tremendous uh, black market underground operation out of New York City with Giuliani looking the other way. Um, then you get to 9-11 where Giuliani is proclaimed America's mayor. People aren't investigating any of this dirty activity anymore. It all worked out uh, pretty well for him. But you know, Giuliani obviously came back in the picture during impeachment um, because of his role in the uh, Ukraine shakedown. You know, they do the same tactics over and over, the same methods, the same people. And that's one of the things that's been perplexing to me because they've also had the same people overseeing this. Like Mueller, for example, was the director of the FBI um, from 2001 to 2013. Like, where was he when all this stuff happened? When he finally indicted Manafort, it was for crimes Manafort committed in 2002. It's like, well, maybe if you'd done that, maybe if you'd done that in 2002, Manafort wouldn't have run Trump's campaign. Uh, Trump wouldn't have been intimately hooked up with the Kremlin, and we wouldn't have our lives the way they are now. So I really think Uh, We need a greater call for accountability. All of these administrations, you know, the Obama administration, George W. Bush's administration, the Clinton administration, they all have some responsibility for not stopping um, the threat of transnational organized crime and not seeing the vulnerability of nations. Uh, And they have not spoken out about it. I don't know if it's out of fear or humiliation or pride or what. But it would be beneficial if they do. I mean, we're now all like trapped in our houses, unable to leave because of a plague. So we've got plenty of time to absorb their excuses. And I'd be uh, delighted if they would bring them forward. This podcast is brought to you by Exact Sciences. Join the Madison-based team working to lead earlier cancer detection. Visit exactsciences.com to view the company's hundreds of open jobs. I think I think to some extent we all know that there's always been corruption in government. I mean, certainly things like Watergate happen and, and we see that and we hear about politicians who, you know, can be on the take or, you know, too influenced by lobbyists or what have you. I mean, we, we know that there's an element of that there, but um yeah, you know, you're you're talking about something deeper and more insidious than that. And it is is the Trump administration is this is there something different going on here that hasn't been going on before or is just this just the the culmination of or the the natural outcome of what's been going on 
And it's a mix of both. I think it's by far the worst it's ever been. Um, it's also the most open it's ever been. You know, the Trump administration doesn't even try to keep up a pretense of being a government that serves the American people, that, you know, uh, keeps America's place in the world, um, you know, preserved. They've gutted the State Department. They gut the DOD. Uh, he mocks slain soldiers. He mocks their widows. This is an anti-American administration. And so that aspect of it is new. In terms of corruption, it's a continuation of the unpunished corruption that's gone on for decades. And that got worse uh, in particular with income inequality, uh, with the hoarding of wealth um, by elites and plutocrats at just unprecedented scales and the insertion of that kind of dark money into American politics. And what that did was take away leverage from the people so that you know Republicans in particular were no longer afraid of losing an election based on cruel, abhorrent policies. Um, and then there's, you know, there's other things going on on the ground as well. There's you know, social movements within different groups. But in terms of the organized crime element, uh, yeah, I, I do think that it's new and it's specific and we're getting, um, you know, uh, things are being revealed to us now that have been happening for a long time. Like in this book, I have uh, a chapter on Jeffrey Epstein. And when I wrote it, my editor and some others were a little bit baffled. Like, why am I including this at the time mm. random guy uh, who had not yet been <laughs> arrested, who had not yet, quote unquote, uh, committed suicide? You know, why am I bothering with him? And it's because, you know, as I, I traced these connections, I had found that he is a central player um, in this operation, you know, in it probably in an espionage context. That's something that Alex Acosta, the former Secretary of Labor, said that Jeffrey Epstein worked for intelligence. He didn't say which intelligence. We also know, of course, he's a pedophile who ran a trial, a child trafficking operation around the world, um, that he was an associate of you know, the most wealthy and powerful people um, from many different countries, uh, including many of our own representatives, and also including Donald Trump, who was accused of raping a 13-year-old that had been procured for him by Epstein. And so, you know, this is a very, very disturbing story. It's very ugly. Uh, once he was arrested, there wasn't really much confusion among my publisher as to why I, I saw fit to devote so much time to him. And then, of uh -huh. course, once he quote unquote committed suicide, uh, it became even less confusing. But, you know, all of these things, you know, you brought up scandal. Like, I wish it was like scandal because scandal had a deep state. Like, scandal <laughs> had some folks in the background trying to hold this thing down and not just let it be a total free for all of, of brutality and cruelty and abuse of the most vulnerable people. Because at the heart, you know, that's what this is. Uh, and they are, in fact, very organized. Like, the upper levels of this organized crime syndicate, they know what they're doing. It's not incompetence, it's malice. Um, there's a lot that has to do with with money laundering. You know, a lot of this is just theft. People act like, gee, why, what do they want? It's so mysterious. And I'm like, it's money and power. It's money and power and territory. It's the same things that people have wanted since the dawn of time. They just don't care about being arrested for it anymore because they now control, you know, the legal apparatus that traditionally would have held them back. The courts, uh, the FBI, you know, foreign intelligence agencies, everything has been compromised. And so that's new. Um, you know, and I 
I think digital media as well has really changed the game, whether it's non-state actors like WikiLeaks inserting themselves into this situation or just the role of social media, um, digital propaganda, what it's done to us as a society. I mean, this is just a time of incredible technological change, like easily rivaling the printing press. So you're going to get all sorts of unexpected outcomes from that level of transformation. Uh, unfortunately, they were not beneficial ones, um, other than, I guess, our ability to communicate now while hiding from the plague. <laughs> <laughs> So you, you said twice, quote unquote, committed suicide. I, I take it you do not think that Jeffrey Epstein oh, hell committed no. suicide. No. no, I don't think he committed suicide. I mean, the, I remember the day that this happened because I actually went on vacation. It was like one of the very few times I took any time off over the last like five years. And on the very last day, we were getting ready to drive from, I think, Omaha to St. Louis. That's the first thing I saw. And I'm like, well, vacation's over now. And what was interesting to me about that is that no one thought he committed suicide. Like, no one. It was across the political spectrum from, like, extreme right to extreme left. And I thought, wow, you know, maybe pedophile child trafficker Jeffrey Epstein will be what brings us together as a nation, you know, in in this horrible (laughs) way. Unfortunately, it's been turned into kind of a meme and a gag. And, you know, I I don't like that because I, I really feel for his victims and I feel like they should be at the forefront, you know, they're protection of them. But it was appalling because basically what this these people needed, in particular Barr, you know, whose connections to Epstein go way back, his father was connected to Epstein. They needed Epstein to uh, be dead in some, be dead on paper. I'll just put it that way because they needed all those court cases to be dropped. Alan Dershowitz, another recurring player in all of these scandals, he needed his court cases to be dropped as soon as Epstein was declared dead. Um, then all of this just went away. He wasn't in jail anymore. There were no uh, impending trials, no revelations of evidence that were going to implicate the wealthy and the powerful. He was just out of the picture. And I find it fascinating that the media just dropped that story. We had like two weeks of Jeffrey Epstein revelations. He wanted to spread his DNA everywhere. He was kidnapping people on his New Mexico ranch. He had been had a special deal with the FBI in 2008. And, you know, as I was writing my book, I was doing last minute edits at this point. It was supposed to be handed in. I was trying to keep pace with this. And I thought, wow, like maybe by the time my book comes out, we'll have all the answers to this. And my book will just be this weird antiquated thing from the time we didn't know the truth, but nothing. I mean, there's, there's been basically nothing like there, there have been some journalists who've worked very hard to get at that story. Julie K. Brown of the Miami Herald in particular, but look at what's happening there. Like the Miami Herald is basically going out of business. Uh, that kind of hard-hitting local journalism is going to be gutted by the forthcoming, um, you know, Great Depression that will follow the coronavirus crisis. Like it's a, it's a mess. But that story, I, I do feel like that's the nexus of the crisis in a lot of ways. And if you follow its little tentacles as it stretches around the world, um, you implicate an awful lot of people. So we, we've talked a lot about the, the the organized crime element of this, the, the Trump element of this, government element of this, but what are the forces that have been at play at a national level that have, you know, I guess, acted in, in concert with, with all of that to make America ripe for, for this to happen? I think a lot of things. I think um, income inequality, um, the stagnation or lowering of wages, the inability of people to pay their bills, 
the fact that necessities like healthcare, education, childcare have become essentially luxuries uh, for anybody like under 50 years old, you know, all those things that people associated with the American dream died within the last uh, 20 years. But we are told over and over again, you know, either it's cyclical or it's normal or what do you expect? I've been pleased that over the last five years, I think a lot of those fundamental injustices have been brought to the fore and they've become mainstream positions that we need to raise the minimum wage, that we need universal health care. We've also seen uh, much more of a mainstream addressing of systemic racism and how racism influences different policies and how long people have been suffering uh, with unfair circumstances. And so all of that, that aspect of it um, is good, but it also, you know, in response, you saw the right wing becoming more and more extreme. Um, I honestly feel like it's just a continuation of the sort of thing we saw under Nixon with this Southern strategy, with the overt racism there. Um, I think also, you know, and I mentioned this in the book, there's been geographical inequality that I do think is new. You've seen the conglomeration of big businesses, powerful industries like media, politics, entertainment, technology. They're limited uh, to just a few cities in terms of who holds that that power, places like New York or DC or San Francisco, while the center of the country in the South really got hollowed out by the 2008 uh, recession. I know that's certainly the case in St. Louis, and I wrote about that a great deal. Um, that creates a lot of frustration and sadness and resentment that a demagogue can tap into very easily. And I think we've seen that with Trump, um, as well as with other members of the Republican Party, who of course are all backed up by the giant propaganda apparatus known as Fox News, as well as unlimited dark money that came about as the result of Citizens United and other rulings that, that legalized uh, you know, basically the pouring of dirty money into politics. So to what extent are just your average American citizens responsible for looking the other way or not knowing what's going on here? I mean, when it comes to the organized crime aspect and even the Russia aspect, I don't blame people for being confused about what's going on uh, because I think it's been pretty poorly explained by the mainstream media, in part because they don't treat it like a crisis. You know, this is a crisis. It always has been. But they've just kind of glossed over it, treated it as normal. And I think that people assume that if something is really an existential threat, that those with power, whether in media or government, are going to come forward and treat it that way. They're going to treat it as a severe, you know, moment, like, like they are now with coronavirus. Um, you know, I think another example of something that is a severe existential threat that was ignored is climate change. And so we see this pattern again and again. You know, in the book, I, I talk about it as normalcy bias. So I don't hold, you know, regular folks accountable for not knowing the little details of all of these terrible interactions between organized crime, oligarchs, mafiosos, foreign governments. Like, it is complicated, and I try to break it down uh, in a way everybody can understand. You know, what, what I don't excuse is that, you know, Trump is an overt bigot. He's a racist. He's a demagogue. He's surrounded himself um, with other racists and xenophobes who overtly want terrible, abusive policies. When you look the other way on that, um, 
you know, I mean, that's doing a terrible thing. That's hurting another human being. And I think that's that's the way that, you know, you should look at it. And I know that there are people who voted for Trump or voted for others uh, who share these views and now they regret it and they want to, you know, do something different. And I think that's good. You know, we need to move away from that. We need to realize this is never just talk. Like these are people's lives on the line and there's no life that's expendable. There's no life that's disposable, but that's how they treat people. And whenever you see anyone treating somebody that way, um, you know, you should put yourself in their shoes and just ask, like, is this something I want to be a part of? Like, do I really want to be part of this movement, even if it seems to be giving me some other advantages? And and look at it as a moral crisis, because um, that's something everyone can control. You know, every, even when the world seems like it's out of control, even when it is out of control in many respects, you can control your moral stance and your conscience and how you react uh, to different situations that you unfortunately find yourself in. So I I would hope people, you know, conduct themselves that way and, and vote with that in mind in the future. So what else would you ask of people in the future? What what advice do you have or how do how do we keep how do we I guess change course? It's a hard question to answer now because the idea <laughs> yeah. of the future, you know, is already tenuous. And I write about that in the book, too. And I was thinking more of, of fascism. I was thinking of climate change and uh, the exploitation of that. We now, of course, have a great plague. So everything is going to change from that. Um, one thing I guess that's positive that came out of this is I think people realize how undervalued a lot of workers in our society are, service workers, teachers, medical professionals. Um, they realize how hard it is for people to just get by, how hard it is to parent. I'm hoping that there'll be a sense of empathy that's cultivated through that. Um, but what I see, of course, is a government that's trying to pit everyone against each other, pit red states against blue states, uh, make cities literally you know, fight to the death for resources like it's the Hunger Games or like it's one of his insane reality shows. We need to get away from that mindset. But I, I think very understandably people's mindset right now is grief and it's survival. You know, we're all reading horrible stories um, and depending where we live, you know, we're living through uh, horrible atrocities right before our eyes. And it's a very overwhelming thing to deal with. And I think technology, it's great that it gives us, you know, this ability to be together from afar in a time of crisis, but it also means that we spend all day looking at a screen, reading about, you know, morgues and parks being turned into burial sites and all these very overwhelming things. And, you know, while I don't want people to tune it out completely, I think that we are psychologically, you know, just as a, as a world, everybody, we're not um, hardwired for this. You know, and I say that as somebody, I spent my whole life studying horrible things like dictatorships and mafia syndicates and poverty <laughs> and all these atrocities. Um, you know, it's hard on me. It's, it's, it's hard to experience it, um, to experience these losses firsthand and, and hard to read about it. So I just encourage everyone to kind of go easy on themselves, um, you know, and, and go easy on each other. Like, just be kind and decent to each other. I think that that could go a long way uh, when people are experiencing this level of pain. To me. And since my heart still likes to be, I'm coming home. Thank you for listening to Wedge Issues. <laughs> Hildy says thank you, too. Our theme music is Oh, Wisconsin by Loxley. We'll be back most Fridays with new episodes, uh, but things are a little unpredictable uh, and um, barky with the dogs here uh, in the time of coronavirus. So forgive me if the schedule's a little wonky. The best way to make sure that you're staying up to date is to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you prefer to get your podcasts so you don't miss one. 
If you have feedback or suggestions for me, you can find me on Twitter at Jesse Opie, or you can email me at jopoyan at madison.com. You should also definitely check out our other Cap Times podcasts like The Mad Splainers and The Corner Table. Thanks again for listening. I hope you're all staying well. I'll see you next time. This podcast has been brought to you by Exact Sciences Corporation, the makers of Colaguard. Once again, be sure to learn more at exactsciences.com.